Kia ora and welcome to the Maxim Institute Book Club. My name is Joanne and joining me in the conversation today are Maxim Institute researchers Danielle Van Dallen and Rowan Light. We're here to discuss Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a 1959 book that was written post-war and about his experiences in the concentration camp. He was a, a prisoner in Auschwitz and then Dachau. And the first half of the book is all about his experiences, some stories, um, and just life in the camp. And following that, it's um, a, a whole section on his logotherapy. So he's a psychoanalyst. So he was writing ab- about his stories, not for the sake of capturing um, the imagination or to talking to people about this is what I experience, so much as this is a theory that he developed, a psychoanalytical theory, and in contrast to Freud and some other theorists at the time. How did you find this book? I really enjoy this book. I read it for the first time a couple of years ago and picking it up again this time around, I got a lot more out of it than I had last time or the first time that I read it. I have spent a lot of time, um, as followers of Maxim's work would know, I've spent a lot of time recently thinking and working in the space of euthanasia and assisted suicide um, in the lead up to the election. So reading through some of his thoughts and particularly thinking around the value of the human person, it struck a different chord with me. And I think also reading it during lockdown, during um, a year that's quite unusual, reading it when you're, I've already been drawing these connections in my brain, thinking about how people would have felt at different stages of the war to how we're feeling now and, and, and feeling some of those, I mean, definitely not in a concentration camp and, and life is, is not that hard, but there is some of that exhaustion and the uncertainty, I guess, that I could hear and f- kind of feel some similarities with as I read. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a part of something that Viktor Frankl talks about is is the experience of being in the camps and living a provisional existence. So the the idea being that you kind of lose control of of the kind of contours of your life, and you don't you're not setting your schedule, you're not setting where the time and and your your kind of your deadlines, and and you, you lose a sense of your future orientation. Uh, and that's certainly, I think, an apt way of thinking about the lockdown where we lost. Uh, all of the kind of key ways that we kind of mark off the progress of our of our daily life and our weekly life and then even our, our year had, were kind of pulled out from beneath us. Uh, and it is a quite an apt way of thinking about this disorientation that we felt. I think that's the right word, disorientation. Another thing that he talks about a bit is, is apathy, right? And, and meaninglessness. That feels like it's been heightened in a period of lockdown and COVID um, where some of the things or the areas of our life where we where we take our meaning from have been dulled it's it's easy to to just kind of be like well living in a bit of a um oh what's that film um Groundhog Day where you're you're constantly every day is is a bit the same um and and it's hard to get that kind of broader perspective and picture of of what am I doing here what is what is the purpose for each of these days when they're all strung together in one continuous stream I think my reflection was just you know how privileged we are and I think um, one of my reflections on reading that first collection of stories was just a real sadness about how some people, there's a conspiracy th- theory out there that sort of denies the Holocaust even happened or the extremity of it. And just thinking about these people's lives who were dramatically changed and put through horrendous horrors and um, institutional evil 
and for us to even deny that and just think about, you know, 70 years later or more, how our lives are so privileged in comparison. And I think, you know, you read that first half and you, you reflect on the stories and you try and put yourself in that situation and think, could I have survived? How would I have survived? And how would I have been to the my, the fellow prisoners? How would I have been to the guards and these people who are treating me so despicably? It was it was quite a I found it quite a confronting to um I sort of putting myself into that story and trying to to work out what life would have looked like at that time. I think that's so heartbreaking. Um, reading through that first half of the book, you hear a lot of the pain and the dehumanization that went on and then at the end he talks about leaving the concentration camps and liberation and that I think he makes a point um, that that the prisoners didn't even hope for happiness to come out of that and realize that other people didn't even believe what your story was gosh how heartbreaking that would be to have been dehumanized to the point that you're only a number that everything is is stripped away from you and and to see destruction and brokenness in such a brutal way and the, and then to to come out of that back into real life I, I'm just amazed that people were able to to carry on I, I think it's quite phenomenal it is interesting I mean there's a few kind of ideas to draw out there there is something I think about what is compelling about the book is that it is an experience of the holocaust in the way and the holocaust really sits at the heart of kind of modernity in some ways and it's at its worst danielle you you mentioned there the yeah the kind of the the added trauma or the double trauma of coming out of this experience and yet not even being able to communicate that or for people to really comprehend and that goes that's really a story of 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 the trauma and and violence of the 20th century in many ways of 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 extreme uh, acts of violence and and the difficulty in actually coming to terms with that. And I think it is part of the what's compelling about the book is that he offers uh, a way to do that, to come to, 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 come to terms with, with uh, trauma and violence and extreme suffering and to kind of make sense of that and to narrate it and to put it into, uh, to, to actually make it in, in some small way communicatable and actually accessible for us here sitting in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2020 reading this this experience of, of Frankel's Joe you asked about like how did you find the book I've, I've read this a few different times over the last 10 years actually I was thinking I probably read this probably 10 years ago when I first started uni and I think it is a book that you can re- return to and you read it in different ways and that's actually something that Frankel is he talks about a lot which is that you know we we're in a sense life calls us to respond to each, each person in their own terms, but even in our own, each hour and each moment of our life is going to be different. And so we're responding every time in a different way. So it does, it, it presents different challenges and different insights, I think, the book, um, which is partly why I think it's so refreshing and, and why people have been drawn to it over the last 70 years since it was first published. Yeah, it continues to be on those bestseller lists. Yeah, I think the book essentially speaks to what it is to be human. And he's telling these stories, and obviously the best way to communicate is through telling stories. So he tells these series of stories, and you, you can't help but reflect. So so how can one human do this to another? How could I inflict on either of you 
the horrors that these people were inflicting on each other. And I think um, it'd be good to maybe talk about some of the stories that um, struck us through that first half of the book. Like one of the ones that um, comes up pretty early on is that the moments when they have um, the prisoners, they choose what they call a capo, who is another prisoner um, incarcerated like they all are, but they've chosen them because of their um, personal characteristics which um, lend them to be more like guards. So they get privileges, they get privileges to beat them, the, the other prisoners, and they get, um, apparently he, he refers to them as being worse than the SES guards. And so just that thought of like, how would the guards even choose a prisoner what characteristics would a prisoner in that horror, they've been stripped naked, they've been paraded around, but all of a sudden you've been singled out because we think you can inflict more horror onto, onto your fellow prisoner. And in doing so, we will reward you with more food, more portions of this, more portions of that. And just reflecting on that was quite confronting for me. Like what, what makes someone stand out to be selected <laughs> or that would have the quality of that? What does it mean to be human in that circumstance? Well, I think it's it is interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting that he st- he actually starts the book with that. Essentially, we we in the, within the first few pages of of the first half of the book, he is he he talks about the capos and it, I don't know. I've always thought reading the book, why did why does he start there? And I think it is in a sense that those prisoners are choosing quite a different response to the circumstances of the concentration camps. In some ways, he's put pointing out in quite kind of analytic terms as as a psychologist that it is a kind of response and it's in a sense understandable under the circumstances. And in some ways, it's the it's kind of stands at the the other extreme of what of what Frankel wants to 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 point out to us in his meaning centered sort of approach or strategy. But I do think, in a sense, we're in one way we're all capable. I think of of being one of those the the prison guards and what's valuable for readers to think about is actually what are the conditions that I need to set up so we're probably not going to find ourselves in such an extreme situation but in small situations in life we have to kind of prepare ourselves to to be able to make the the right choice and the make the right response to circumstances so in a roundabout way Joe I don't know if I can think about quite the selection per se of what it how how the SS might have been able to somehow pick out the worst in a sense the worst of the of the of humanity. I want to add to that because I think he talks about an important part or facet a facet of that is that Frankel is saying that the world isn't black and white. There aren't good guys and bad guys. There is no like black and white line between at that time the the Nazis and the Jews. He he's saying that there, there was a a blurred reality and that actually there were some he talks about the commandant of of the camp right at the end of the book and how he found out um that towards the end of the war he had been doing what he could to to help the jewish people by spending money or uh, like buying extra food with his own money to to give to his prisoners to look after those people and in the same way some of the the capos they were crueler in some situations than than actually the the workers um or the the guards in the camps i think rowan's right in saying that this is about attitude and how we respond to a particular situation if we're if we're relating this to our everyday life in the book he starts off there but he also starts to tell stories about these micro decisions and he also, um, there's a, the point at the beginning where he gets off the train and there's a commandant who's like, his finger goes to the left, 
finger goes to the right. And it's those micro decisions of if you go to the left, you are going to um, be incinerated. If you go to the right, you go to the work camps. And just the sense that there is this innate um, drive within each person for survival. And he said at that point, you don't think about moral ethics. You think about what can I do to survive? And I think that's what you're referring to, Rowan, is that sense of we don't know what we would do to survive when we're put in these extreme situations, but he's telling us about this extreme situation in which um, each prisoner rationalised whatever to try and what can I do to survive and the driving power or motivation that he articulates is that they just wanted to get home to their loved ones and what could they do to survive this to be able to get out the other side? They would do anything. And and that's where that motivation come from. Yeah, and I think what he wants to tell us through the book is that you can you have different strategies for survival. You have different extremes. One is to is to become a sort of monstrous, brutal figure to survive. And that and in some ways, some of the ways the, the ideologies and some of the ways we hear about how we describe human beings, that's that's a logical kind of outcome. That yeah, you strip away take off the, the frills and the kind of the the manners and the the niceties of, of the human and the and you just reduce them to a kind of near animal and they will act like an animal but Frankel kind of I think wants to show that there are different responses um, and in particular he he's not even making a kind of moral judgment he's not saying which is better or which is morally better he's actually interested in kind of pointing out what's actually most effective what is going to get you through the circumstances that you don't have control over but you've been handed in a sense that life hands you you use the example there of the guard sending us left or right or frankel left or right you don't he didn't have a choice right that decision was made for him so frankel's interested in effective strategies for survival but also and, and crucially because you could say well surely brutal brutality is a, is potentially the most effective but it's the one he also wants us to think about what is the strategy of survival that we can that we can live with because that's what this what this is what the book is ultimately about because it's the book itself is actually the product of Frankel trying to make sense of this experience trying to live he's writing after and he's like how do I live how do I live through this experience and so he's showing us quite literally as he narrates as you say as he tells these stories about how do you live with yourself and he suggests that it's very hard you might survive as a capo but to live with yourself, it's, it's going to be a very hard thing. And, and that's why he, he hones in on that sense of that's to choose to live well, to the, this art of living that he gives us through this meaning-centered approach, strategy of life um, is one that you can live with and you can actually feel that, you've, that you've, you're growing as a person. He also refers to it at the end when he talks about when they've been released and just the behavior of all these prisoners who've had these shared experiences and these shared horrors and he, he describes two responses that he saw primarily. So these are all victims and they come out the other side and the, some victims came out the other side with grace and compassion more so for humanity because of their experiences where other um, prisoners came out and they went out and perpetrated other crimes. It's like, well, that's happened to me, so I'm going to do that on someone else. And I think that's part of the story that he's telling is that um, they may have been, you know, normal, if you like, and a normal prisoner suffering these crimes. But on the other side, well, what do you do when you go out? How do you respond? And that's part of his story, as you say, and him making sense of this, trying to make sense and trying to make sense, I think, rationalise some of the decisions he made. 
obviously we're hearing it from his point of view. I'm sure there are decisions that he made that he wasn't very proud of or happy about compromising situations when it's life or death. And so his, his story that he's telling is that um, the search for meaning, how do I make sense of suffering? How do I make sense and live out the other side when I've been dehumanized? How do I still say, stay human? I think it's 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 making sense out the other side and, and, and staying human. But also when you don't know if there will be an end to it, if you don't know whether you will survive, he sees value in the person and, and, and a meaning in life, even when you're in the most dire of circumstances and there is no real possibility of that coming to an end for the for these prisoners living in the concentration camps they were not aware of when it would end we we know at this in in this side of history that the war start vaguely started on a particular date and ended on another and we know that there's this period in between of these really dark and difficult years but when you're living in the midst of that there is no end in sight it's just going on and on and on and yet within that he believed that there was meaning for those prisoners in those most difficult of circumstances because of how they could respond because of the attitude that they could have toward their suffering or because they could have hope for what 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 might be he talks about how even in the even having lost all control over their lives and having been stripped back completely you know depersonalized and give it, taken all their all their prestige their social status their physical strength even through malnourishment has all been stripped away and yet they have what he terms that kind of spiritual freedom of being able to choose their response and their, as you say their attitude um, I think one of the, the most beautiful stories that comes out for me in that first half is the story of the sunrise and then the prisoner who runs and says come come look at the look at the the dawn join me and, and there's this kind of this wonder and this awe and this kind of and this which is a response and it's a choice to say I'm going to see beauty I'm going to see the sunrise and I'm going to see beauty and I'm going to respond to it as as, as something beautiful even when the world is messy and broken and awful. <laughs> exactly, and, it, and in, in a sense, it's that it's that small choice that is is powerful, and it makes it manageable. Because I think you, yeah, because if you were to take as these prisoners this excruciating situation and this impossible situation, and we we could maybe it's you know maybe we could think as readers of the book today, maybe it's lockdown, thinking about lockdown and the pandemic, this thing that's completely out of our control. And it can almost crush us if we think about it. It's like this this thing outside of our control and what are we to do about it? Whether it's, I mean, for many people, it might be something like climate change, you know, this sense of this impending doom. doom. <laughs> <laughs> Even for activists, you know, the, often the activist gets burnt out because they feel that how can they change? They, they You know, they're, they're fighting and they can't seem to change the world. And that, and, and Frankel says to us, we can't actually change, we, do, we don't have to accept our circumstances. We're not just taking it at face value and being defeatist and saying, well, you can't change anything, just sit down. And But he's saying it's about you. what you do have a choice is how you respond to those circumstances. That's the quote that I've got from the book is he says, the last of human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. And that's what we're talking about. And I think it is really powerful. Um, how do we respond 
that's the one thing that we can control. And so he gives you those stories to, to see where the prisoners, as you say, saw the dawn. And there's another story, the trudging in the snow in the dark. And they're stumbling around, they haven't got footwear. But he looks to the sky and looks to the stars. And as you say, it's that sort of ability to acknowledge beauty, regardless of what they're going through or feeling. They're acknowledging the beauty and able to look outside of themselves for something that is bigger and more constant than this, than this temporary moment that they're in. Yeah, he also talks about his love for his wife. I think he says that he, he, he le- realises that he loves her then more than he ever had before and they are separated. I, I think she's died by this point, but he's not aware of that. Or no, she ha- yeah, she does. Very sh- I think she would have died almost immediately yeah. at arriving in the, the camp. And, and he's not aware of that, but he also says that, that that doesn't matter. He has this picture of his wife in his mind's eye and he is living to, or he's having this opportunity to remember her and to honour her and is just so deeply in love with her that he forgets the situation around him. I think he's able to continue because, because of that love. He realises that his love for her is his reason to continue. Mm, it becomes his his why, yes. his his logos, his reason, his his meaning. His meaning. Mm. I think humor, humor is another really interesting one, um, which I think is quite. It's it's been. A, I mean, again, it's it's hard to if we're thinking about the Holocaust or that experience the concentration camp. It can seem almost perverse the humor, um, but maybe we can contextualize it in our own lives of seeing, being able to see the funny side of things when we're in a bit of under stress or we've had things happen to us, being able to laugh laugh at ourselves, I think is such a good, can be so good for people, um, can be such a good response. I think it's a way of um, processing a stress or um, trauma. I know a paramedic and within the industry that they deal with the the trauma that they see on a regular basis through through humour as colleagues because they have to, because it's one way of an outlet for some of this emotion that otherwise they can't talk about or they don't feel that they can. Yeah, it's interesting, the the, the love thing, um, the fact that he held up an image of his wife and it was that that got him through. And it's he goes back to the book of, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. We have um, love, in his opinion, is something that is um, what gives us salvation. He said, I saw the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. The salvation of man is through love and in love. It was this contemplation of his wife and remembering the wonder that he had with her and his love for her that gave him the strength to survive that situation. And it's, it's quite a beautiful story. And it makes you wonder, you know, what do we love in this day and age and how much do we love it um, in a way that can we survive? Can we survive through things because of our love for other people? Or is our love for ourselves greater than that? I feel like it's... Um, a thing in our society at the moment, whereas almost we we talk about love for self becomes a little bit more, we put ourselves ahead of even the family, our children. There, It seems to be a rare conversation where people talk about their beloved in a way that would make you feel like they've got them first. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think about the individual, right? Frankel is a existential psychologist, so he's, he's very interested in this tension between the individual, ourselves, and how we, how we relate and how we connected to the collective and the broader kind of social relationships of our lives. But you're right, Joe, that I do think we would think of ourselves more as individualistic, as, as, 
is we, we talk about self-actualization as something quite self-contained. And in fact, we see that through a lot of pop psychology. It's all about your self-help. And uh, whereas I think Frankel does point to, he, he's talking about individuals and our, our, that each person has to respond in themselves to their circumstances. But as you say, it's not um, about isolation. It's not about being a lone wolf. It's about reali- finding your meaning and, and understanding your, your personhood in relation to others it's about that community the community around you that's why again this is why this book i think speaks to modern audiences so much because it does in a simple way cut to the heart of some real fundamental questions about how what it means to live in our society today and there's these tensions between individuality and transcendence and our relationship to our society and in some ways those tensions um, and played out in the ideologies of of the 20th century um, at the heart of Nazism and communism and, and liberalism are these questions well what is the relationship between individuals and, and the crowd um, and what should take precedence and where should we take our, our cues and perhaps in a liberal society we, we, we tend to towards the individual the extreme of individualism Nazism and, and communism tended towards the totalitarianism of the of the crowd and of the collective consuming the individual. And so, again, I think it speaks to the way that, that Frankel's book is, in speaking about the Holocaust, it speaks to the, the heart of kind of modern, the modern condition. When he talks about existentialism in the book, he talks about the fact that that word can be used in three ways, existence itself, the human mode of being, the meaning of existence and the striving to find concrete meaning in personal existence. And that is what he defines as the will to meaning. And his book is about the fact that when we have uh, resolved this will to meaning, um, then we have purpose in life and find life fulfilling. It's interesting, he talks about the fact that a man's concern or his despair over the worthiness of his life is an existential distress. But once we resolve that, then we find purpose in life. And I find that really interesting. And he said, analysis tries to make a patient aware of what he actually longs for in the depth of his being. That's what he tries to do when he was doing his logotherapy on his patients. What do you long for? And it made me think, you know, what do we long for? And is is there a universal need or longing within us um he he seems to indicate that and I was just curious about any thoughts from you two around whether there's a universal longing I just want to take that step back first um because I think he he prefaces this in in the first section of the book as well when he talks about um talking to some of the other prisoners when when that he's trying to help them search for meaning and for one of them I think it was reminding him that there is no other person than him and so returning to his family um if if he dies then they will he is not replaceable um and for for another it was the story of he he had a another prisoner had a book that he wanted to complete and nobody else could complete that book so he he needed to survive in order for that work to be completed for that meaning to be filled so so going back to your question Joanne, that the areas that he talks about are a work, love, and and response to suffering, which I think are areas that we've kind of touched on, um, but these are the ways that we can can find our our meaning, or at least he he believes that 
in whatever circumstance these are areas that we do tend to find our meaning but a a, p- a big part of that is this idea of responsibility. I've read a couple of commentaries where they talk about how Frankel would later joke that there sh- as there is a Statue of Liberty on the east coast of the US, there should also be a Statue of Responsibility on the west coast. That's because we, we as unique individuals, we have a bit of a responsibility to, to live out our fullness in society because nobody else can do that for us. I think you're right, Danielle. There's hitting the three love, work and, and, and courage and, and that is the response to suffering is a way that whether those are universal or those I think are the things that he certainly identifies for modern living are, are recurring themes. Um, again, and I think that's why it resonates. Uh, the book resonates for uh, for 20th century now uh, for 20th and now 21st century audiences because those are really the domains relationships. Um, and our work and the ordinariness of, of life in some ways is, is something which we have have sought to kind of grapple with. Um, authenticity is something we often talk about in our society and the desire for, to be authentic. And that's actually at the heart of existentialism, that the, the sort of what, what, how do I be my true self? Frankel suggests, well, that's not actually contained within you. It's not something to kind of curate and, and to find in yourself it's actually found outside of yourself and it's found in in your response and it's in your work and I think that's something eminently um, relevant to to readers today is because that's what we immerse ourselves and which in some you know you see an attitude today uh, that work is something almost to escape you know we talk about the drudgery of work and for many people the weekend is the thing they live for but actually what Frankel offers us is something quite radical yet so ordinary in that he sees our daily work is something which can give us immense meaning in it because it becomes the very stuff of our of a kind of quiet heroism. It's not a heroism of of a superhero or of a grand gesture. It's an it's a very micro act or micro choice, as as you talked about earlier, Joe. Um, and that to me is 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 really profound. And I think that's actually one of the insights that always affected me early on as a student. You know, seeing work and seeing study and and as, as the kind of, yeah, the very stuff of life, not just something to kind of get through so you can get on with the real real living. I think at the end of the book when he's talking in his logotherapy section, I really enjoyed it. And what I enjoyed so much is that he's speaking in the 1950s and yet he could have been talking about us right now. And he, he talks about the fact that um, automation is increasing and so people are getting more and more... Um, discretionary leisure time and he's saying people are so bored that they don't and they don't know what to do with their leisure time it's causing this mental distress you know they haven't got this meaning and and what you're saying Rowan is the sense of we make meaning through through work and it's a micro understanding of our lives rather than looking for these big significant things and I think that's that's really important I think the other thing that I found really interesting was that he talks about um, Sunday neurosis. Uh, he said it's a kind of depression that afflicts people who become aware of their lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over and the void within themselves becomes manifest. I think that just describes what you're talking about, uh, where people are you know, pushing for the weekend, but there's almost a, a sense nowadays where we, we live for the leisure rather than what, you know, what can I do with my leisure time, but then we've got so much 
to fill our time. And if you think about 70 years on, a lot of people are filling their lives with um, electronics. You know, we, we stay at home more. We're not out and about or connecting as communities as much as we used to. He really speaks to this change in society in, so, in a way that is actually really quite striking, I find, because it's so long ago and he could be speaking to our audiences today. And he talked about the fact that it's it's boredom versus distress is the two extremes, apparently. The other term that you can add to that kind of mix is, is the, the search for pleasure um, and, and that we, as a society, just, just want to be happy all the time. But apparently research says that when you search for meaning, you are more likely to find that pleasure. And in fact, when you're single-mindedly pursuing happiness – you ironically are left less happy. Um, so, so actually there's this kind of pull and tug here where what Frankel is recommending and this search for meaning and finding meaning in life actually is more likely to leave you more happy, which is what we are often searching for. Yeah, he, he talks about, that's right, if you, instead of pursuing happiness, uh, let's, uh, happiness should ensue. Yeah, so if you, if you stop looking around and trying to kind of get out of your responsibilities... And your duties and, and seeing those as kind of chains that trap us and prevent us from, from being happy or, or enjoying ourselves, actually seeing them as the, the stuff of life. But I think we also have to come, we, to do that, we need to know our why. And that's where we have to think about, well, what is it that we live for? Who, who are we living for? Yeah, when you're talking about pleasure before, that's one of the things that strikes me is that he's, he's contrary to Freud, who says that we're in the pursuit of pleasure. And that's Freud's analysis of where people are at. Is this the the conflicts between um, pursuing you know, sexual gratification and the pursuit of pleasure is like the the, the height of our um, rational um, struggle. Whereas what Frankel is saying in logotherapy is no, it's it's our struggle to understand our place in the world and how that is meaningful. And if we don't feel worthwhile, then we lose the sense of momentum and we lose a sense of drive for the future. And he talks about the fact that we need to have the tension of what to do next driving us forward to keep our lives meaningful and he says that that mental distress is important what have I achieved already what have I yet to achieve that's important for us to find meaning in our lives and I'm not quite sure that we do think about that much I guess the driven people do but I think in general our society is all about now it feels a little bit more like what can I do I I work to for pleasure rather than understanding there is so much pleasure to be gained through work which is what you're talking about Rowan. I wonder if part of that is because the idea of I need to find my meaning in life can be quite overwhelming as a concept when you talk about these big ideas um, and you're trying to relate that into the the everyday life the, the kind of reality of everyday life and and you might have a, a nine-to-five job where it's, it's hard to find meaning in life. I think Frankel's really helpful for this because he's saying, well, you don't need to have these big grand gestures to find that meaning, actually. Your meaning sometimes is, is just in, in living out who you are because nobody else can do that for you, right? This is being modern. It comes with a great, there's many great things about being modern, but that is one of the, the burdens is that we, we, unlike perhaps humans in previous generations, uh, aren't given our, our meaning you know where we, we, we and that's part of our society where we, we 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 celebrate the fact that we can choose whoever we want to be we're not just handed our role in society um and frankel talks about how that is really 
a very modern challenge, and that's why existentialism is a modern philosophy. It's something which is responding to the, to a new situation in human history. Yeah, he was talking about the fact that um, it's the traditions that would inform people's ways of being in the world, and we've lost a sense of that in, in society right now where we don't have to follow the rules of a particular way of being, and we've got so much more autonomy, um, so much so that it becomes you know, the preeminent pursuit in our lives or the thing that we think is we're owed the most is to be autonomous in that sense. Yeah, and it's in a sense the transcendence is obviously something he's very interested in, and in some ways the transcendence, whether that's a whether that's through religion or a cultural framework or a, a kind of the cosmology of our lives, and that is crucial to this because it's the external, it's the big external kind of context of our lives which we have to pursue and interact with. We cannot find it in ourselves, so there is this kind of paradox in what he explores here, which is that. It is ultimately our response, and it's up to us how we respond to life. But it cannot; it can't. We're not just lone. We're not just silos. We we have to find it outside of ourselves. This transcendence, and yeah, in previous times of, of human history and in different cultures, uh, even today, we we see different kind of cosmologies uh, and ways of engaging with the transcendent. I think it's really important that, I don't know that he picks up on much, I'd be interested in your reflections, as the prisoner relating to the other prisoner, that they find some meaning as well. It's caring for those who actually were so crippled they couldn't get off their bed. It's it's re- uh, saving some of their bread for somebody else. There was a lot of care for the other. So it wasn't just about their own survival, even though that was preeminent. There was a sense where... Um, those who cared for the others right to the end of their lives as they died in the camps actually gave a sense of meaning. That's right. It's like this um, idea of solidarity. Uh, we're, we're going to journey through this together and I'm going to help you in, in this even very small ways that I can. But it's, it's more than solidarity. It's almost that this is the sense of community that they've got. It's like I'm not doing it just to be, be alongside you. I'm doing it because this is an expression of my humanity to care for you. And, and to be considerate of you. And I think it's a really important concept about understanding community. It's interesting, I came across a quote by Stanley Howarth recently where it talked about, and I was thinking about this book, and he, he talked about it's, uh, the community of care makes it possible to absorb the destructive terror of evil that constantly threatens to destroy all human relations. And I think he was talking about that in relation to the, the horrors of the Holocaust. But there's a sense of it is caring for each other in community that's the antidote and gives the ability is like I'm standing with you I can withstand these horrors and I think we can um, make that even even now how do we find meaning in life it's not actually as you say the pursuit of pleasure for myself or pursuit of happiness for myself is how can I help you enjoy life how can I volunteer he talks about volunteerism in the book as well how can I volunteer to um, help and serve other people and in doing so when I see somebody else's need and help meet it, I find more meaning in my life and more joy in my life. He's pointing out that it's not enough to survive, just survive, um, but in order, we have to live. You, you put it there very nicely, Joe, when you say that it's about showing one's humanity. And that, that again, that's the paradox of being human, is that we can be more human or we can be inhumane and we can lose our humanity. And we see that play out in the camps, the this, this dilemma of, of being a humanity, showing one's humanity or, or losing it. It reminds me of the great film uh, Interstellar. 
Christopher Nolan, and it in a sense captures that story or this this kind of choice of of if humanity faces you know, destruction and a, and a probable extinction, does that mean all bets are off and we should just do whatever we can to survive? That's essentially the uh, one of the, the choices in the film by Matt Damon's character. So sorry if you haven't actually seen the film, but Matt Damon's character essentially is... is horrible. Is a, is a nasty, you nasty to, man. You love to hate him. I haven't seen it. <laughs> He's a great villain because great villain. because he buys into this logic of, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to survive, even if it means essentially condemning condemning people to 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 death um matt mcconaughey's character takes a very different response which is to say no i'm going to out for love of my daughter so again for love he's going to to respond very differently uh, and not lose his humanity and 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 and, and in actual fact it ultimately leads leads to to survival and um, salvation and salvation his love for his daughter it was interesting at the end of the book, um, one of the things I thought was really beautifully put was he talks about the value of life, regardless about regardless of your usefulness. And he talks about the fact that um, people at the end of their life, at, when they are aged, they don't lose their value just because they've got nothing to offer to society, but it's all their history and their experiences, the grace and the dignity with which they have traveled through their suffering, these are things that um, we can look to and respect and 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 honor and yet he talks about the fact that people nowadays usefulness um, is defined in terms of functionality for the benefit of society and that's a really important point when we started this conversation I mentioned how it really struck home to me because of my work on euthanasia and assisted suicide and this in particular that section really stood out to me because this is something that I've been saying for a long time we we need to value people outside of their their usefulness or the money that they can offer to society or the ways that they can contribute to society and and fiscal means because actually the um outside of that humanity and people have so much to offer and we have so much that we can do to learn from them to contribute to to live together to end that life um, prematurely is is quite heartbreaking and he speaks to that in the sense that well he draws a connection to um, Hitler's program of mercy killing quote unquote mercy killing um, and the definition that was used in the camps was that those who had lost their social usefulness because of old age, incurable illness, mental deterioration or whatever handicap they suffered, that was the parameters in which um, they were sent to the furnaces. It's interesting because he talks about the fact that there's a societal change where it's, it's so achievement oriented and that society adores the young and doesn't got much place for old age. And I thought it was just really beautifully written about the fact that it's the dignity of an older person and the stories that they can tell which give us meaning and help us draw strength for moving forward Instead of always looking to the future of the young, it's actually appreciating the, all the life experiences of someone who's a little bit older. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and that's something Maxim as an organisation we really believe in. Um, it's in our, our um, value statement that that we we want we're here to 
to promote the dignity of every New Zealander because we think that's really important and that's that's not just people who can add financially to to society or who can live out um, jobs within their, their the middle of their life but actually it's 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 all of life all New Zealanders that we need to promote the dignity of it's been interesting thinking about euthanasia and the referendum in the context of reading this book because in some ways Frankel offers us quite a succinct arguments for essentially in that if we fa- find ourselves in the, that situation in the end of our life or in, in the context of terminal illness and we are suffering we have no control over that circumstance what we do have control over is obviously our choice and response to those circumstances. And I think if we we're not choosing euthanasia, we're choosing an attitude of of seeing the um, the opportunity to rise above suffering, as difficult and as heartbreaking as that can be. That there is value in that because you can offer so much still to to the people around you, um, the the community, the friendship, the family, the love, that sort of support. Um, is is a huge gift that can be lost. And I think that's what I was referring to earlier, which is drawn right throughout the book, is it's the way that we can connect to others that helps us get meaning in life. And um, the stories of people at the end of life where they're helping assist someone who can't assist themselves anymore, that's an act of love, which should be respect and honoured. And I think so much in our society is it's about the individual and, well, I don't want to be a burden or I don't want to put somebody out. But there's a lot of pride in that. If I can lay down my pride and accept your gift of service to me to help me at my end of life, there's something very meaningful that I've now offered the other person who's caring for me, whereas I'm denying people opportunities opportunities to really connect to something very beautiful and meaningful if I deny somebody the opportunity to help me when I can't help myself anymore. So just to wrap up reflections on the book, is there anything else that we haven't covered off that just struck somebody that they'd like to refer to? I was thinking about what are the take-home lessons I think for readers because it can be hard, you can be read this book and be full of, be inspired but it's it's hard to sort of understand well what's the actual kind of steps that I can take to to living a more meaning-centered life. And there's a kind of paradox here because, of course, Franco was saying, well, this is actually how to live a good human life, but it actually doesn't come naturally to us. So we have to make an effort. And you could ask yourself, how do I go about preparing myself for to be able to make res- the right or l- the responses to my life circumstances that will let me live uh, or be able to live this 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 art of living and something he points to early on in the book is that those who were best, that he saw as being best able to choose the strategy of meaning were those who had a kind of rich um, life of contemplation and who had thought, who had, and that, I don't know, sometimes you can read and come, it comes across as what, just the, is it just the sort of the intellectual type or the, the one who, who, who likes to read or this sort of thing, but it's, it's much, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's about somebody who has, um, who takes the time to yeah to contemplate and to 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 in a sense engage with something like this a book club to actually set aside the the the, the um, intellectual life um, I think that's worth placing an emphasis on for for readers and it's not just uh, the intellectual life it's those stories that he talked about it's contemplating the beauty and creation the stars the sunrise even the trees were so beautiful in comparison to the starkness of the camp so it's it's contemplating the world around us and the beauty in that and we can draw a lot of inspiration and 
um, I guess if people of faith would draw them closer to the transcendent as well. But there's a sense where contemplating more than just our own existence and our place in it helps provide that sense of meaning. His framing of it was his logotherapy. He's talking about the will to meaning, but he also talks about our responsibility. And he had a, an imperative through logotherapy, and he called it to live as if you are living for the second time and acted wrongly the first time as you're about to act now. So there's this way of co- that contemplation of like, I'm about to do something, but I'm to live as if this was my second time around. What are the consequences of the action that I'm about to take if it's wrong? And so therefore, if I'm about to act in this way, what are the consequences of that? So living each day, every moment, thinking about what what is this action? What is the responsibility of my actions in this moment? And I think there's something really important about that. We don't think often about our responsibility in life. And he talks about that as important as the will to meaning, is having this responsibility to act in those particular ways as well. Yeah, another way he puts it is to ask what, not what we expect from life, but what life expects from us. There's a great quote in the book where he says, our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. And I I think that's a helpful reminder of how am I going to approach every day? How am I going to approach life when it's even at its most difficult? Thanks, Danielle. I think that's a great way to finish. I think also just I'm gathering from you both, and this is my feeling as well, this is a book we'd recommend to others to read at some point in their life. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for joining us with the Maxim Institute podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this um, conversation around Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl. To get hold of any of our other work, head to our website, and you can look up this podcast and other work there.